cave and field mentioned. Ephron's field and Machpelah near Mamre, same cave. Both the field and the cave and all the trees within the borders was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. So that dirt that's described there in chapter 23, described again here in chapter 49, is the first bit of territory that God's people get in God's land. Remember, God said, I'm going to make a people and I'm going to give you this land. That cave and the field around it, Abraham bought so he could bury his wife Sarah in it. And that was the first, that was their foothold or their toehold in the land. That was the first bit of dirt that they could say, this is ours. And what Jacob is saying, he's been in Egypt for 17 years. He says, that's still my home. I may, I've lived here for 17 years, but that's where I'm going to end up. Put me back in the ground with my granddad and my grandma, with my mom and my dad and with my wife. That's where I'm going to spend. That's where I want you to put my bones. And it's a sign of faith. Him saying, even though I left, and I don't know what's been going on there for 17 years, I know that's ultimately the land that God has for us. And again, as a sign of faith, I'm going to tell y'all, take me back there. Verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. That's just a poetic way of saying he died. Joseph threw himself on his father, wept over him, and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So we begin to see Jacob, even though he was a foreigner, and only lived there 17 years, there was a lot of respect and honor that had kind of accrued to him. He was an old man when he went. He was 130 when he went. He's 147 when he died, so he didn't do anything other than be an old man. But... Just God's favor on his life, he obviously had, was, had an elevated position. He was esteemed by the Egyptians. They mourned for him for 70 days. Forty of that, they're embalming him. That's just an Egyptian uh, practice to slow the decaying process. They either, like a mummy, they either wrapped you up with a bunch of strips of linen or they took your organs out and put them in jars and put cloth inside of you. I don't know what they did to Jacob. We don't know. But they did that to him, again, as a sign of respect. That was one of their customs. When the days of mourning, so when those 70 days had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. Again, you see the respect that Joseph has and the, or Jacob has and the esteem that he's held in, that it's basically a state ceremony. Joseph is second in charge. It's a big deal for him to leave. And so I think he leaves the kids behind along with the animals to say to Pharaoh, I'm, I'm coming back. I'm going to go, but I'm going to come back, and I'm leaving these things here just so you know I will be returning. When this whole crowd reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. So that's something that, just, that's something that Joseph instituted. The other 70 days was really set up by the Egyptians. 
when the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. This is why that place near the Jordan is, is called Abel Mirazam, which means the mourning of the Egyptians. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan. They buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Marmaray, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. So all that saying is they did what their dad asked him to do. Jacob said, put me in this cave. And they took him there and they put him in that cave. So they honored their father's wishes. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. So in verse 18, when his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him, We're your slaves, they said. Let's keep reading. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. He reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So what's going on there? Now dad is dead, and they're wondering, is he going to pay us back now for how horribly we treated him? They've been with him for 17 years. He's been taking care of them in Egypt. At this point, Joseph's probably 56 57 years old, somewhere in there, and they're wondering, like, is he, that thing, that what we did when he was 17, 40 years ago, is he going to pay us back for that now? Has he just been holding back out of respect for dad, and now that he's dead, is he going to come after us? And so they send this word, and we don't know if they ever had that conversation with their father. They may or may not have. doesn't matter to Joseph at all. And they say, through this, this servant, Tell Joseph, Dad said, to forgive us. And Joseph's response is he says he weeps. He's upset, and I think he's heartbroken. I think he's going, y'all don't, y'all don't get it. You don't understand. That, when I brought y'all in 17 years ago, I'd for, I, I forgave you then. If you remember way back when we were looking at that in chapter 42, when the brothers show up, and Joseph begins to speak to them harshly, then he remembers his dreams, and then he puts them in jail, and he has this three-day period where I said my contention is during those three days, God is showing him, this is what I've been up to during this, during this stretch of time. These past 22 years when you've wondered what in the world is going on, I think God showed him, this is what I've been doing. And I think in those three days, he forgave his brothers. Because when you look, coming out of those three days, he treats them completely differently. Very kind and very gracious. He blesses them. And everything he does from that point on is to try to get them to Egypt so he can take care of them. Because that's what he realizes. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to save y'all and to take care of y'all. And so I think he's heartbroken that for the last 17 years they've lived with this sense of impending dread and doom. What's going to happen when dad dies? How is he going to treat us? They didn't get that he'd already forgiven them. And that verse 20, that's probably the, that is the clearest picture of Joseph's understanding of his life. Y'all intended to harm me. True statement. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. We'll come back to that, but that verse is the clearest picture you'll see of Joseph's understanding of his life. And again, we'll see how that connects with us. Verse 
22. So now we fast forwarded another 50 something year, 43 years, something like that. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years. He saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Maker, son of Manasseh, that was his other son, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid. He will take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear on oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So just like his dad, he said, I'm going to die, but I want you all to promise me you're going to take me back home. Now, there's a 400-year gap between the end of Genesis, that last word, Egypt, and then Exodus 1. There's 400 years during that time when we don't know what's going on, other than the Israelites are having a ton of kids. We know that's happening. Their nation is growing exponentially. And so Joseph's looking forward to that and saying, I know there's going to be a time when we get to go home, and when we do, take my bones back there. So that's Genesis for us. As I was thinking about this last chapter, the thing that jumped out at me, particularly that verse 20, is probably the most um, probably the most telling for us. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The theological word for that is providence. Providence is forethought or foresight. It means God has a plan and he's working towards it. And what you see in that verse is Jacob saying, or Joseph saying, that there was, this was providential. The way all of this happened, it was providential. God was in this. He had a plan and he was working towards it. And so this, you can kind of see the contrast. On the left, you intended to harm me. This is actually what happened. It's all found in Genesis 37. The brothers hated him. They wouldn't speak a kind word to him. They hated him. They plotted to kill him. Let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns. That's what happened. Again, the brothers saying, Joseph saying, y'all intended to harm me. That's what they were trying to do. On the right, you see Joseph's beginning understanding. This is in chapter 45. He's had that three-day time out with the Lord. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant and to save your lives. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's a picture, that slide of providence. So here's all of the things that were happening in my life, and here's what y'all wanted those things to result in. But, and, whichever way you want to see that, God was at work under and over and around all of those circumstances to accomplish his purposes. Y'all were trying to kill me, and he was using the very circumstances that y'all thought would kill me to save you. How's that for irony? The things that you think are going to kill me are the very things God is going to use to save you. That's providence. And that's what Joseph, he gets that perspective, I think, during that three-day time period in Genesis 42. He begins to see, oh, God's been at work for these 22 years. This is what he's been doing. So for us, as we kind of close out Genesis, I want you to, underneath what we're, I'm going to give you some things to hang on to, but underneath that, foundationally, I want you thinking providentially. I want you thinking about your life and your circumstances and saying, God, wh- where are you taking this? What are you up to? Wh- what's the, I know there's a plan. I just, can't, I just need to know where I fit 
into it. We said earlier today, God's plan, Genesis 12 on, form a people to bless others. That's what he's trying to do. Form a people for himself in order to bless others. He's still doing the same thing today. The first people he formed were the Jews. We're We're the second people, the body of Christ. We're the people of God that he is forming. Why? In order to bless the nations, in order to bless our world. That's what he's doing. Saving us for himself, forming us into his image, and then sending us out to bless others. There's, this is not fair to condense everything that God is doing into a three-point plan, but that's what I'm going to do. So, if you want to know what is God up, like what's the, what's the deal, what's the plan, give me a big picture. I need to step back and see what's happening. It's this. First, God is saying he wants to rescue and restore any that are willing. Anybody who's willing to say yes to him. He wants to rescue them. That's Colossians 1. He wants to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness and translate us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Salvation. I want to save you. Those songs that we were singing. I want to save you from death. I've got the keys, Jesus says. I've got the keys. And I want to rescue any who will say yes to me. Matthew 24, maybe it's 10. Jesus says he's not going to return until the gospel's been preached to all nations. He wants everybody to have a chance to say yes. Number one is personal and individual. It's about your and my and everybody else's relationship to God through Jesus. And it's not just about saving people. It's about restoring them as well. He formed us and knit us together in our mother's womb. All of that's marred by sin, and so he gets to work on us, delivering us from things that hold us back, healing us, filling us, and refining us. All of that work, that's what he's doing. And then two and three are two sides of the same coin. Eradicate the effects of the fall. From Genesis 3 on, things have gotten worse. Why? Because sin entered the world. And with sin, so did sickness, and so did death, and so did pain. Jesus is coming. It's him saying, hey, we're going to reverse the effects of of the fall. In 1 John 3, 8, The Bible says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's the same thing. Eradicating the effects of the fall and destroying the works of the devil are the same thing. And that's what Jesus said. I'm doing that. That's still the plan. I'm in the process. You can see it negatively. I'm tearing down all the bad stuff. Getting rid of it. And then the third is the positive side of that. It's the building up. I'm establishing my rule and my reign all over the earth. That's what the kingdom of God is. When I say kingdom, don't think of a geography. or Don't think of a place. Don't think of a castle. Think of rule and reign. His rule is just and it's merciful. It's other things. But those are two good words for us to grab onto. And that's what he's doing. He's trying to implement this just and merciful rule all across the earth. Those are the big three things that he's doing. The first one is personal and individual. The second two are much more corporate. They have to do with the community, what he's doing in our world. So if you want to know providentially, where's the direction that this is headed? There's your three bullet points. That's what God is up to. So much more than my personal development, he's invited me into this plan of cosmic redemption. He's fixing everything. That's Revelation 21. I'm making all things new, and you get to help me. Number one. That's a condition for Jesus' return. He won't come back until everybody has a chance. And when he come, and number two and number three won't happen fully until he returns. So there's some, these things are tentative in a lot of ways. 
Jesus said, my pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That won't fully happen until he returns. But there's a lot of space. There's a big gap between where we are now and that prayer being fully answered. We got a lot of ground that we can take between here and there. There's a lot of room for improvement between now and when he returns. It's not an excuse to say, well, it's not going to fully happen until Jesus returns, so I don't need to engage. Not at all. He told us to pray that, which means he wants us working and moving and believing in that direction. So that's God's plan. So when, again, as we move ahead and start looking for where do I fit in all of this, I want you to keep that in mind. Now, we're all called to do all three of those things, but it does seem to me that everyone has an affinity, maybe more of a of a pull towards one direction or the other. Some people love rescuing people. They love talking with people who don't know the Lord, and they're really gifted and great at sharing their faith and helping introduce people to Jesus. And some people are really great at cleaning people up and getting in the mud with them and saying, you've said yes, and I'm going to help you figure out what that looks like. And that's kind of the restoring part. Some of y'all are justice people, and it gets it grates you when you see people getting trampled and run over and done wrong. And you may be someone, and that's what you do, is you point that stuff out and say, that's got that's going to end. That is no good. And it's coming down. Some of your, your thing is you like to see people who are sick, made well. And that's, again, kind of that idea of tearing down, eradicating the effects of the fall. Other people, you're builders. You can see. Oh, I can see it. When this when our schools, our families, our churches, our businesses, our government, the creative community, the scientific community, when those things, when they're working under the rule and reign of God, I can see what that looks like for those things to bless people. I'm not saying Christianize them. I can see when those things are actually functioning as a channel of grace for the people in those areas. Rather than making it more difficult for people to flourish. They're helping people flourish. You can see that. You may be someone who builds. We talk about community transformation. That's what we're talking about. Those three things. That's what God is up to. And he's invited each one of you to participate with him in that. Let's see that thing. Joseph, looking at his life. This is, again, not fair to him. But he's dead. So what's he going to say? You flatten somebody's life into that. Three events, I'm calling them pivot points, and two major seasons of his life. Again, it's not fair. There's a lot more going on, but I'm trying to reduce it for the sake of simplicity and clarity because I want to force you to make a decision. I want you to plot yourself on that line somewhere. None of you are dead, so everybody's to the left of that last line. You're somewhere in between called and dies. That's where you are. I want you to put yourself on that line, I'll talk you through it a little bit. This major season of Joseph's life, he's called, that's the dreams, where the primary function, what he's majoring in, is preparation. He's minoring and bearing fruit. He does bear fruit. He bears fruit at Potiphar's house. He bears fruit in the jail. But the primary purpose of his life during that time is preparation. Then that three-day period, when he sees his brothers and his eyes are open, then moving forward from there, he's majoring in bearing fruit and minoring in being prepared. God's continuing to stir him and work in him and conform his character. But in general, the major focus of his life is to bear fruit. Go ahead, Mark. That's good. So kind of pulling that out a little bit. The calling, those are the dreams that he had. That's God's initiative. At some point, God will say, 
Here it is. And it's usually instantaneous, and it's exciting, and we can kind of go, yes, I feel like this is, in Stonebridge lingo, we call it your deal. I feel like this is what my deal is. These are the good works that God has created for me to do. And you get excited. It's Alex. This is it. I'm going to Ireland, and I'm going to do this creative arts thing. And then you immediately, when you say yes, wish you hadn't. Why? Why is this so hard? I said yes. And all I'm doing now is struggling. It's you're being prepared. For Joseph, it's 22 years, 13 years where he's in terrible circumstances as a slave in Potiphar's house, in jail, forgotten about in jail. Seven years where he's running Egypt during this time of abundance and two years when he's running Egypt as a part during the famine. So from whatever that says, 17 to 39, what God is doing is forming Joseph's character. I've got to work some things into you and work some things out of you. Skills. All you know how to do is tend sheep. I need you to learn how to run a country. And so you've got to learn some stuff. Positioning. You live in Canaan. I need you to live in Egypt. You're the 11th of 12 sons. I need you in a position where Pharaoh himself will say, that's the guy. It's hard to get from here to there. There's some external positioning that has to go on. And then just practically, Joseph has to save some grain. That's, what he, that's part of the preparation for him. If he's going to fulfill his calling to save his family, then he has to have some food to give them. So all of those things are going in during that preparation time. Again, he is bearing some fruit then, but that's not the primary focus. When he's 39, his eyes are open. It's that three-day period. Incredibly significant. My contention, it's not a conviction, my contention is that many of you are right there. That's where I am. I'm 39, eyes open. That's where I, and I'm betting most of you are in that phase. You have this sense. You have this sense of this is what God has called me to do. And God's been forming you and shaping you. And then there's this time period. For Joseph, it was three days. For Saul, it was three days when he was blind. For Jonah, it was three days in the belly of a fish. For the apostles, it was ten days in the upper room when they were waiting to be filled with the Holy Spirit. For Jesus, it was 40 days when he was in the wilderness. And that's where you are. It's a definite period of time. It's definite. It has a beginning and an end. But it's a period of time. It's not instantaneous. So if... if the calling is God's initiative, and it's all rainbows and butterflies and preparation. It really is about your cooperation, Joseph cooperating with the Holy Spirit to do this work. I see your eyes being opened. It's a bit of a dogfight. There's some wrestling. Again, read those stories. Not necessarily the most pleasant times when you're trying to figure out, you're trying to hear the Lord, and he's trying to direct you, and there's some opposition. Because look what's on the right side of that. When your eyes are open, then things, then things open up for you. And you become fruitful. You're fulfilling your purpose. For Joseph, he's actually feeding his family. That's what he's doing. Every day when they come to him and say, we're hungry, and he gives them grain, he's doing his deal. He's preserving his family through a famine. If God is forming a people, then the people can't starve to death. And Joseph's role in God's forming a people who will then bless others is to keep them alive during the seven years of a famine and then ongoing Beyond that, we see that. And you've got a role to play too. And again, for many of us, we can focus so much on personal development, sometimes just even on our little family and what we have going on in our world, we don't recognize God's invited us into this cosmic plan of redemption where he's making all things new. And so I can hear my heart behind this, but in a very real sense, that 
timeline that we just looked at, that previous one, that's all that matters. If you want to know the measuring stick for your life, that's it. Where are you? Where are you in that? And are you moving towards the direction of bearing fruit? Because this is the stuff that lasts. This is what's eternal. Again, thinking providentially. God has a plan and he's working towards it. We said those three things. He's rescuing and restoring people. He's tearing down. He's destroying the works of the devil. And he's establishing his kingdom. That's the plan that he's working towards. And what he said to all of us is y'all get to help. It's take your kid to work day. That's what he's doing. And he's saying, y'all come on. You have a role to play. And what he's asking of us is do it. It's what he asked of Joseph. Play your part. Do your deal. Accomplish these good works that I put in front of you. This is the direction I'm going, and I want you to come with me. As we close, I want you to think about this. Hebrews 11. So the first 22 verses of Hebrews summarize Genesis. And you may be thinking, then why didn't you just do that? That would have been a lot quicker. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we don't see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That's Genesis 1 and 2. By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. That's Genesis 4. By faith Enoch was taken from this life. So he did not experience death. You remember that. Enoch was translated straight to heaven. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. That's Genesis 5. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because everyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered God faithful who'd made the promise. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Think about that. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would embrace the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. That's what we looked at last week. And by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning 
the burial of his bones. That's what we looked at this week. So, providentially, where's God at work? This is what he's doing, these three things. Rescuing and restoring, destroying and building up. That's what he's doing. He's invited us into that. We've got a role to play. There's things that he, there's a, there's, a, there's a job for you, jobs maybe even plural for you, in that. He's in the process of preparing you or opening your eyes or releasing you to bear fruit. That's what he's doing in you. As we think about Genesis, the word I want you to leave with is faith. That's what we see here. It's a whole book. It's foundational. It's the first book of the Bible. And what God is saying is, this is step one with me. Faith, what does it say? Without faith, you can't please him. Why? Because you can't even approach him unless you believe that he exists and you're never going to see him. So that requires faith. You're talking, you're approaching, you're worshiping someone who you can't see. That, that in and of itself demands faith. That's foundational for everything. So as I'm encouraging you and challenging you to step out into God's calling on your life, to ask him, God, how are you using my life and my circumstances providentially? To get towards this goal. What I want you hearing me saying underneath that is. Do you trust him? Faith is trust. Do you trust him? Trust demands expression. We said it's standing on the chair. Not saying I think the chair can hold me up. It's actually standing on it. There's evidence of the fact that I trust him. That's what I'm asking you to do. When you hear that. Let me give you a couple of pictures. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephath, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. When we hear that, we go, yes, that's faith. That's a result of faith. These wonderful, awesome, incredible results. These people trusted God, and look what happened for Samson and David and Samuel and these women that got their kids back. Yes. Yes. Keep reading. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins. In goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. We hear that and we go, no, no, no. I like the first half better than the second half. But what does God say about them? What's the verdict? If you believe the Bible is inspired by God, what's the verdict? They were all commended for their faith. Some got what they wanted. Some got killed. And they were all commended for their faith. Jesus in Matthew 17, interesting. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, that's the smallest thing I can get show you. That's the smallest thing that you can see. If there was something smaller, he'd have said smaller. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, then you can move this mountain, Mount Hermon. It's 9,500 feet tall. That little bit of faith moves that mountain. In Luke 17, he says to his disciples, he's talking about forgiveness. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mulberry tree. What does that mean to us? 
those trees lived 600 years and had this massive root system. You can say, be uprooted and thrown in the sea and it'll happen. A little bit of faith. And when we hear that, oftentimes we think, oh, it's like a vending machine. That's how much it costs to move a mountain. It costs a mustard seed of faith. That's how much it costs to uproot a mulberry tree. It costs a mustard seed of faith. If I can get a mustard seed of faith, then I can put it in the vending machine and push what I want, and I'm going to guaranteed results. That's not relational. That's transactional. And that's not who God is. Faith is trust. Trust is a relational quality. Relationships are based upon it. And so when he says faith like a mustard seed, he's not setting a minimum. What he's saying is, if I could think of something less, I'd have told you, but you couldn't see it. What he's saying is the, the amount of trust that it takes to involve God is incredibly small. It doesn't take much. You all have it. If you've said yes, then you have it. Because without it, you wouldn't have even said yes. You wouldn't have even approached him because you can't see him. That requires faith. It's an invitation from Jesus and a challenge by Jesus to say, ask. Ask me. Ask me for things. And at times, you'll get what you ask for. That's the first half of 32 to 35. And at times, you won't. It'll be terrible. But in neither one of those instances, in both of those instances, God commended the people. Why? Not because of the results, but because they trusted him and they were willing to shape their life around who he was and what he said. And that's what he's asking of us. Faith like a mustard seed. Do you have enough faith? Yes. To trust me? Yes. Then watch what I do. Okay. Sometimes it's going to work out the way you want. And we can take a victory lap and high five. And sometimes it's going to be devastating. And we'll pick you up off the ground. But for us, from his perspective, it's commendable. You trusted me enough to base your life around what, on what I said. You trusted me enough to shape your family around what I was calling you to. He said no to his own son. Take this cup from me. Not going to do it. Why? Providentially, this is where I'm going. And you've got to suffer for me to get there. Paul, greatest missionary ever, said no to him. Take this thorn from me three times. No, I'm not doing it. Why? Because my grace is made perfect in your weakness. I, I'm going this way, and I need your suffering is going to help me get there. Sometimes the answer is no. It's not because you didn't have enough faith. It's because the answer was no. And sometimes it doesn't work not because the answer is no, because we live in a fallen world. We have an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. What he wants to know is, faith, do you trust me enough to ask me to get involved and to do incredible things in you and through you? And faith, do you trust me enough that when I don't, you're still going to stick with me? It's two sides of the same coin. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember it. These three guys, they're living in Babylon in this pagan culture in a pagan time and the Nebuchadnezzar he's the king builds this huge statue and says everybody's got to bow down and worship when they hear this music and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego won't because it's idolatry and some guys like sissies they go and tell on him and say Nebuchadnezzar Shadrach Meshach and Abednego won't bow down and he calls them in and says you're not doing this and they say no and he gets ticked at their 
disrespect. And he heats the furnace up as hot as he can make it. And he says, last chance. You worship or you burn. And this is what they say. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. That's faith. That's the first half of 32 to 35. Yes, God can do awesome things because I'm trusting him. I trust him enough to wrap my life around who he is and what he says. And what he says is no other gods before me. And so, yes, he can save me. Read the second half. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. That's the second half. But even if he doesn't, we trust him enough that we're sticking with him. Even if we burn. That's what he, that's, as we close Genesis, that's what I want in your mind. Faith of a mustard seed. Don't think amount. It's not an amount. It's the smallest thing he could come up with. What he's saying is, will you trust me enough to base your life, to wrap your life around who I am and what I'm saying? Put that in context. This is what I'm doing in the world. I'm rescuing and I'm restoring. I'm tearing down the works of the devil. And I'm establishing my kingdom. And I want you to help. So will you say yes? Will you trust me enough to say yes? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. And I thank you that you have good works created for every one of them. And they are good. And they will fit them. And they will be deep. And they will be rich. And it will be wonderful except for the times that it's terrible but god it will be wonderful overall and god i pray for any who say i have no clue none god would you speak to them i pray for those who are in the preparation stage and they're hating it because it's miserable they're in jail or they're in slavery or they're forgotten God, would you encourage them, strengthen them, give them the grace not just to persevere but to cooperate with you? Would they ask in the middle of difficult circumstances, God, how do you want to use this to make me more like Jesus? God, how do you want to use this to make me more useful to you moving forward? God, I pray for those of us who are in that, we're in time out in some ways. You're trying to open our eyes. God, I pray that we would wrestle and fight and listen and all of the different things that you're asking of us to gain clarity so we can move into a time where we're bearing fruit. And I do thank you for those in this congregation who are in that season of their life. I think about an apple tree and how easy it is for an apple tree to produce apples. It doesn't sweat it. doesn't make it nervous. doesn't worry about meeting a quota. It's just what an apple tree does. And God, I thank you for those in this body who are in that season of life where they're producing fruit. They're connected to you and they're producing fruit. And I pray that they would have a 30, 60, 100-fold harvest in their life and in the lives of those who they love. God, fundamentally, we want to be people who trust you. We want to be people, not who look at a mustard seed and either see it as a bar that's too high to clear or something simple. We want to be people who trust you, who recognize you're just saying, just trust me a bit. Just trust me a bit. Trust me enough to take a step. Trust me enough to stand on a chair and see what I do. And God, people who trust you enough that when you don't do what we thought you would, we stick. In Jesus' name, amen.
We're going to wrap up here. Um, we'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. So prayer teams, you can come forward. Bo will sing for a minute or two, and then he'll dismiss us for the rest of us so we can go. But again, uh, y'all can stand. If you want prayer for anything, please come forward, and then Bo will dismiss us in a couple of minutes.